Guardian Unlimited. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Islamophonic. Today we celebrate the first anniversary of the 2006 Terrorism Act by embracing those familiar chestnuts of policing, integration and cohesion. Ruth Kelly says close surveillance and policing must be coupled with better community relations to tackle the threat posed by extremists. Fine words, butter no parsnips, Miss Kelly. It's all very well talking about winning hearts and minds. But how do you hope to achieve this by dragging people out of their homes in the early hours of the morning, accusing them of all sorts and then releasing them without charge? Hmm? More of this later. In this week's show, we talk to controversial copper Ali Desai about the thorny issue of policing and Muslims, and more importantly, policing Muslims. We also visit a Hindu family to see how they balance the demands of their faith with the living in a secular society. Do they face the same issues as Muslims? Joining me in the studio is the director of City Circle, Yahya Burt. City Circle is an influential London-based collective of Muslim intellectuals. We also have The Guardian's Vikram Dodd, who describes himself as a senior reporter when he is so much more than that. Hi, guys. Hi. <laughs> um, I've got some paper for you to mark the first anniversary of the 2006 Terrorism Act. There's some paper for you. Vikram, paper for you for writing all those stories on about... The police. Um, guys, has it been a good 12 months for the Terrorism Act? Uh, I'll start with Vikram. Well, the government would argue it's an important piece of legislation which plugs some gaps in the capability they had in tackling various terrorist networks. Uh, I guess Muslim communities are seeing it as another piece of legislation that's been used to harass them and unfairly target them, the police would say. Well, there's a big threat out there and we need all the resources and all the legislation we can get our hands on to try and keep another July 7th from happening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Muslims think that there's a kind of parallel legal system being specifically designed to police them. And like in Northern Ireland back in the 70s when you had stop and search, you had the internment of people without charge, uh, you had house raids. These three measures in particular did a lot to drive the Irish towards republicanism. The danger is that this may be driving some young people at the edge and making them vulnerable to radical recruiters. So I think that uh, more and more law and the blunt instruments of policing may not be helping the situation. Chief Superintendent Ali Desai was tipped to be a chief constable, but in 2001 he was suspended from the Metropolitan Police for alleged malpractice. He wrote a book about his ordeal, Not One of Us, which was published last month. Here's an extract from the beginning of the book. Ali Desai has just found out exactly what he was being accused of. I was being suspended. It was a bad dream, the setup for a Hollywood blockbuster or a bad practical joke. They didn't look like they were about to start laughing and slap me on the back. I hardly drink and I don't smoke, so the idea of me being a drug abuser was ridiculous. I'd never visited a prostitute in my life. I had also been so careful to be honest in my work, and now these accusations were painting me as a dirty cop, or worse, a crook. My hands were shaking as I looked at the notices in front of me, and I felt as if I was going to burst into tears. DAC Trotter was still reading, but I could hardly comprehend what he was saying, something about being a threat to national security and about visiting the Iranian embassy without permission. The accusations were getting stranger, deceiving the Black Police Association so that they paid an airfare for me and conspiring with an associate to influence legal proceedings against a nightclub. It just didn't add up. 
He had good reason to know that the complaint about visiting the embassy was rubbish. DAC Trotter had personally given me permission to visit the building when I'd asked him two weeks previously. I'm not going to conduct an interview now, he said. He would have been interviewing me for days if he had. In all, there were 20 allegations against me. I had allegedly tried to deceive the company that insures my car. I'd apparently used my influence to get a discount on a Cartier watch. I thought they'd mix me up with someone else who looked like me. He sounded like a nasty piece of work. I was numbed by the adrenaline racing through my bloodstream, but knowing that at least one of the charges was a straightforward administrative cock-up gave me confidence. I deny every allegation you've read to me, I said. It seems I have a lot of enemies and I'm going to find them. This is a wasp's nest of spurious allegations made up by them. You'd better make sure you get your facts right. It was a grand speech, but was no use at all. We have officers outside various houses, and we're going to raid them, DAC Trotter said, including your home. He asked for my house keys. I refused. Still trying to make some impression, I told him he would have to break in. He wasn't getting the keys to my house as well. Vikram, the book's a fairly blistering critique of his time in the Met, but he does seem to have survived. How hard is it for ethnic minorities in the police force? Well, as Ali recently found out, he went for a promotion. He didn't get it. So what you're seeing is still a kind of glass ceiling about people getting to the upper echelons of the service. And you talk to people like the Black Police Association, they say some things have improved, some things have got worse, but too many of their members are still having a hard time based on their ethnicity or on their faith. Ali's story had a happy ending. He was cleared of the charges in September 2004. But his story of persecution and harassment will be familiar to Muslims who themselves feel victimised and discriminated against by the police. High-profile operations in Forestgate and Birmingham have given the force a bad name. I asked Ali Desai what he thought of relations between the police and Muslim communities. I think they can be managed far better. You know, Forest Gates does shake public confidence, does shake confidence in the Muslim community. But when I uh, commented on Forest Gate, I erred on the side of caution. And I remember saying, look, you know, let's not make a decision until we hear both sides of the story. And in fact, when we did, we found that they found the investigation, given the level of intelligence, was proportionate. Now, I have to respect that. But that simply doesn't mean that the Muslim community are, are happy because I just think the police could have prepared for that. And I'm sure the methods learned from it because these kind of incidents will take place again. Absolutely no doubt about that. Would you say then that the scale of the operation in Birmingham recently was proportionate to the alleged plot? When I speak to the Muslim community, they are content in the way we deal with issues. What they're not so happy with is the way information is, is portrayed afterwards. And I think it's really important part of any police operation that if you do something and you get it right, then you should boast about it. But equally, if you don't get it right, I think you should be brave enough to say, look, on this occasion, we didn't get it right and we apologise. Would you agree, though, that the high-profile raids in Birmingham lead to a growing suspicion of law enforcement agencies? There was one man who was released without charge and he did make a statement saying that Muslims were living in a police state. Yeah, I can sympathise with, with, with that kind of thing and perceptions are important. But, you know, I say once again, 
it's the security of everyone. I mean, you know, we are not dealing with, with street robbers. But I think the way forward is for the Muslim community and the police to work together. And recently, what the National Black Police Association has suggested is to have third-party reporting centers. And what that basically means is that if the Muslim community is not comfortable coming into police stations to give intelligence about people who are acting suspiciously, then they could go to third parties, such as mosques and schools and community halls. The Lord Chancellor said a few weeks ago that the government and law enforcement agencies need to win the hearts and minds of British Muslims in the war on terror. What do you think? That is absolutely the case. And let me tell you why that is the case. Because what you need to do in order to contain and deal with terrorism, you need to, you need to actually find the perpetrators, which the police are doing. But one thing you do need to do, you need to inoculate the community from which they draw the radicalized and extremists. And the way you do that is that you work with the community so that they will let you know if there are people who are acting strangely. You don't wake up on Monday morning and become a suicide bomber. You are groomed in communities. The communities know who you are. But the key point is, if that is the case, why isn't that intelligence not coming to the police? There is a disconnect. And it is by winning hearts and minds that you create... Uh, you get rid of that disconnect and you get that community intelligence to deal with terrorism. Why should Muslims join the police force? If you look at what London is going to look like in the next 10 years, over 50% are going to be brought from black and Asian communities. If you look at the metropolitan police right at the moment, out of 32,000 police officers, there are less than 300 Muslim cops. But clearly, that cannot be, because, you know, by having people from different religions, from different faith and uh, cultural background, actually works. And I'll tell you what, how it works. Because you take my borough, we've got the biggest Sikh population outside Punjab. Now, I need police officers who can speak Punjabi, not because it's a beauty contest and it's good to have women and, and Sikh officers and so on. It is operational imperative. So we can actually do our job, and our job is actually making the London a better place and a safer place for everyone to live. Yahya, how clued up is Ali Desai about what needs to be done? I think he's one of the, um, the most thoughtful and, as you said, controversial and outspoken voices coming from the, the whole of the um, British police forces. I think he's very clear that the police needs to be more inclusive. The police have to have the cultural competence and expertise to deal with a very diverse population. I don't think it's going to be about going to the police on every occasion, but it's going to be about having a quiet chat with people if they're hanging out with the wrong crowd. Vikram, why isn't the intelligence coming through? Is it because it's not there? I kind of disagree with one thing Ali said where he talked about... Um, suicide bombers and potential terrorists being groomed within communities. I think more often than not they're groomed outside of communities. I mean, one of the things the media and certain sections of the media and the government have banged on about is uh, we must close down mosques of hate. More often than not, too many mosques aren't really allowing discussion about politics, so people are going outside of the confines of the mosque and being picked up by certain groups, certain what are called uh, conveyor belt groups. In terms of the intelligence there's a big debate about this. One proposal, which Ali referred to, is what's also called amber channels, which is you don't go straight to the police, you go to a mosque or a third-party reporting. And there is a big debate amongst that at the moment and talking to sources within the counterterrorism community. Some elements want it. 
including some who are seen as a bit right-wing and other elements don't want it. They don't want to be seen to, in a sense, be giving up that power, that idea that if you know of information related to a crime, you go straight to the police. They don't see, in a sense, why Muslims should have special measures in this particular area, in this particular aspect. I've got some figures for you. There have been nearly 1,200 arrests under anti-terror legislation between September 11, 2001 and December 31, 2006. But only 40 people have been convicted and more than half the suspects arrested have been released without any charge. Yahya, what effect do these figures have on relations between Muslims and law enforcement agencies? Well, I think these figures show that the intelligence is obviously going wrong and we've got a very broad sweep. And you'd also have similar figures for stop and search as well under the Terrorism Act 2000. You know, we're talking thousands of people and very, very few convictions um, arrests and convictions. So I think, you know, we've got a big problem here. A very broad sweep is going to alienate a lot of young people who feel they're just being religiously or ethnically or racially profiled. Vikram. There are people I speak to within counterterrorism communities say, we aren't getting this as right as we can. And they cite a number of things. One is that they think government policy is all over the place. I mean, you had a situation after the July 7th attacks when the Prime Minister in uh, August stood up and announced a 13-point plan. Now, as, as, as we reported, mm. ACPO, which is the body representing chief police officers, opposed four or five of those new powers the Prime Minister wanted to give them. And you have to ask yourself, if you're trying to give the police powers they do not want, mm. how far from the herd have you really strayed? So there's a sense that from the top, in terms of government leadership, they're playing a bit too much to a right-wing, appeasing the sort of the male and the son sort of agenda. Essentially, it's the question of how can you tell, how easily can you tell the difference between somebody who is very agitated about Palestine and very vehement about it and how likely they are to cross over that line and actually do something in terms of violence and in terms of getting involved in terrorist activity. All right, guys, thanks for that. Uh, We're now going to take a break from talking about policing issues to hear some of the questions that you've been emailing the programme. Riazat, is it permissible to win money in a competition? For example... If my father won some money through the premium bonds or the national lottery, would he be able to share this fortune with his family? And what could he do to make this windfall more acceptable? One time I went to a non-Muslim funeral where people around me were singing hymns. I didn't sing the hymns, but I was in a church. What does the Quran say about visiting non-Muslim places of worship for weddings, funerals or bar mitzvahs? While I was out shopping with my children, I saw some young Muslim men handing out leaflets. They criticised parents who sent their children to non-Muslim schools, saying that children would grow up to be non-believers. I was very hurt by their words, I cannot afford to send my children to private Muslim school, and I am worried that in later life my children will not want or be able to mix with non-Muslims. What advice would you give me? So, those were the questions, and here are the answers. Money, when won in a competition, such as the premium bonds, is halal. It's not gambling, because gambling involves loss of money, and in the premium bonds, you never lose your money. Your money is always safe. However, if you buy a national lottery ticket, you can lose your money. So, this is considered to be gambling, and gambling is haram. Ideally, you shouldn't play the lottery at all, but if you do, and you win... You shouldn't keep the money for personal use. You should give it to a charity, preferably a Muslim one. 
It is permissible for Muslims to go to a non-Muslim place of worship as long as he or she does not take part in the religious ceremony. You should go there to observe, not to participate. So that's good news for people who are going to lots of weddings this summer, including me. Now, participating would involve singing a hymn or reading something from the Bible, for example. It is not Islamically correct to say that children will become non-believers if they go to a non-Muslim school. Muslims go to school for secular subjects and secular education. Muslims have lived for centuries in non-Muslim countries and it's never been an issue. When you live in a non-Muslim country as a minority, of course you interact in different ways, either in the workplace or in education or everyday life. When seeking religious education, you must obtain it from someone who is qualified to teach. This can be done in a mosque or through private tuition. Jazakallah to Imam Raza from the Muslim College in Ealing for those answers. And of course, keep sending in your questions to podcasts at guardian.co.uk and inshallah we'll do our best to help you out. Guess what? Alhamdulillah, we've been nominated for a prestigious Webby Award. Guardian Unlimited podcasts are the only British podcast to be shortlisted and we're up against stiff competition from the States. If you'd like to vote for us... Follow the link on blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash podcasts and register your support. One thing Muslims hear all the time is that they're reluctant to integrate and be part of British society. But is this the case for people of other religions? I visited a Hindu family to find out if they face a similar struggle with identity and cohesion. Hi, uh, Hello, how are you hi, doing? Uh, how are you doing? Welcome. Thank you very much. Welcome, come here, come here. Right. Hello, 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 everybody. Hi. I've got very cold hands, I'm sorry. <laughs> hello. Right, as you can see from our house, it's no different from anyone else's house, but there might be a few things that are quite different. In our front room, we have the usual furniture, but on our wall, we have representation of the Divine Mother, Ma Amba. When we say, when there's times when we're praying in the evening or while the kids are watching TV or something, and I might want to carry on with my mala, my rosary, I'd concentrate on the image of Ma Amba. So that's the main representation in our front room. What would you do on a typical Sunday? But when you say Sunday, when the family is around, we might do a few more prayers than normal. We might spend an hour in the evening just talking about some of our religious scriptures just discussing what's happened over the week, if there's anything they need to ask about our faith, our religion, that they may have come across or people might have asked them. We'll actually air it and we'd like to see what each of our views are on it. How much time do you devote to prayer, either during the week or on a weekend? On a weekly day, I personally spend about two to three hours in the morning on prayers, but that's me. My family will spend up to about half an hour doing their prayers every morning. What else does a Sunday hold for you? Well, on a Sunday, my youngest son, he goes to a Sunday school which is called Shishikunj. Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Deva Maheshava. At the weekend, I learn about our religion. And why do you like going to school at the weekend? Because school's fun. Um, what's your name? I'm Priyanka. And how old are you? I'm 15 years old. And do you go to school as well at weekends? Not on the weekends, no, but I do go to RE classes every Friday evening. I completed a half a GCSE last year, which is just the basics of Hinduism. And this year I'm doing more philosophy, which is more depth. 
and in this time you can ask questions. We have the freedom to question our religion. Questions like, why do Hindus have so many gods? Yes, it's true. That's we quite do radical. <laughs> yeah, we do have so many gods, but we believe that there's one ultimate reality, which is known as the Brahman. But it is split into different forms, and plus every Hindu worships different types of god. Would you say that you were a typical Hindu family? Yes, I'd say we're quite an average Hindu family. How different do you think you are to other people? you know, non-Hindus? We don't have a problem because living in a society, obviously we've got to integrate with all sorts of people, okay? And having a comfortable Hindu household, we have, our children need to be confident about their faith. There is not a problem with my, my children mixing with whether they're English or whether they're from a different background, there's not a problem with that. At the end of the day, as long as they're comfortable in their own faith, Yahya, yeah, what's the big deal if people let their religion dictate their lifestyle? I, I can't see that there is a big deal. I mean, the fuss at the moment is more about people expressing religious identity in, in public life or campaigning on issues related to their faith identity. Uh, and I think that's where the battle lines are drawn, if you like, on issues like faith schools and so on. Vikram, the government often talks about British values, but are these so different from Muslim values? It feels like the government doesn't think they are and that so-called Muslim values are not moral values. Well, I'm not a spokesman for the government, as you may have guessed, but I think what the government would say is uh, certain Muslim values would be be included in the what they see as the big umbrella of British values, which they would claim were non-secular. Uh, I guess what they're objecting to is stuff uh, like the... Or what they're moving towards objecting to is stuff like the niqab and... Uh, other more, they would claim, exclusionary practices which make certain members of the host or majority community uncomfortable. What kind of practices would they be? Uh, Difficult to know what's in their minds because they're not very clear about um, uh, spelling it out, but I guess it's being a bit too Muslim, really. (laughs) I mean, that's the most you can get, really. So basically, as long as you don't wear the veil and you don't send your child to a face school and you don't have a big old bushy beard, you're okay. Well, I mean, if you're saying, I mean, if you look at the sort of history of race and community relations, uh, you know, skin colour is the most obvious definer of difference. But then I think you also get into a culture wars. So I think if you, skin colour is going to be, you know, one thing that can lead to uh, being picked on. But the second thing is being too culturally different. You know, if you think about certain workplaces, the fact that somebody might want a bit of time off to pray five times a day and might want to take time off at different holidays can be uh, a point that leads to you know, an obvious manifestation of differentiation and leads to them being picked on compared to, say, somebody who's of, say, the same, looks the same, but is, say, not uh, being so uh, adherent to the rhythms of their own particular culture. Yahya, do you think it's possible to be orthodox or observant in this country and still be integrated? Um, absolutely, but I, I think that the political climate is making the ultra-orthodox forms, I think, more difficult. Obviously, there's a lot of debate around the niqab at the moment, um, and this is about uh, the, those few women who choose to wear the niqab, wearing it in the professions, or something like I mean, that. This debate is absolutely feeding into all the, all the concern about terrorism, and, you know, you can't help but feel that they're trying to say, well, this is Muslim standing out, if only they didn't do this, didn't do that, then it'd be less likely there'd be terrorism. But if we look at the one attack we know about July 7th, 
You know, Mohammed Sadiq Khan, whatever you think of him, if you look at his life, was pretty much a poster boy for integration. I mean, Mohammed Sadiq Khan used to be called Sid, you know, to his many English friends. So we, we can't claim he wasn't socially integrated. Mm. And so I think we're looking at politics. We're not looking at reviving culture wars in order to, uh, you know, in, in linking integration and terrorism and extremism. I think it's a largely a kind of false debate. Clearly there's an aspect here that's the concern and unease some people have felt about multiculturalism, i.e. about this not being a predominantly culturally white Christian country, you know, changing from the 1950s sort of, you know, ever false image of, you know, old ladies on bicycles and warm beer and church bells ringing. You know, they've used it to sort of latch their concern onto this whole issue. Yahya Bert and Vikram Dodd, um, thank you for joining me. It's been illuminating. And uh, let's hope the second year of the Terrorism Act is as good as the first. That was Islamophonic. It was produced by Francesca Panetta and presented by me, Riaza. But Jazakallah for listening. And until next week, don't get into trouble. Guardian Unlimited.